0: My yard is green, but it's not grass. My yard's probably 95% weeds. You know, the greenness is an illusion. Uh, But the weeds are, you know, those kind, like the little clovers and stuff that... Once they grow long, they're really patchy, and they grow uneven. And, and I suspect that at some point my yard was grass. That, you know, somebody, when they built the house, laid sod down, but a weed started growing in the corner. And eventually those weeds started to multiply and spread throughout the yard. And at one time, kids ran barefoot through the yard, but now there's sticker burrs and those clovers, and nobody does that anymore. So what I do is just cut the yard short, really short, like putting green on a golf course short. And then I kind of cross my eyes when I look at it, and then it's pretty green, and it doesn't look that bad. But a short weed is not grass. It's a weed. So sexual sin in the church is a lot like my yard. And let me just start with this caveat. If you're a visitor here today, This is not what we talk about every week. You know, I I grew up in a church where I think this was the only thing the youth minister knew to talk about. Like, any passage he would make about this, you know, he'd be like, "Um, Samson took a jawbone of a donkey and killed a thousand men. Well, boys and girls, we all know what this means. Don't have sex until you're married. You know, the jawbone of a donkey is like a woman's heart or something. Everything was about that. And that's not the kind of church this is. There's so much more to following Jesus than just this topic. But, but here's the deal. Sexual sin is a lot like a weed in the yard of the church. and We might be tempted to just kind of cut the yard short and then everything, cross our eyes, and then everything just kind of looks like grass. But what we know is that a short weed is not grass. And that if you ignore it, this root of bitterness springs up and through it many become defiled or polluted, like Hebrews says. And so today, we're not going to ignore it. Let me set this up, though. We've been doing this series on alien ethics, and the premise of the series is really simple. The author of Hebrews spends 12 chapters, almost the whole book, talking about our identity in Christ, that we are aliens and strangers in the world who have this heavenly calling. And then in chapter 13, the last chapter, he switches to the behaviors that make us alien, or alien ethics, And they're just one after another. Uh, Love each other as family. Be hospitable. Remember those in prison. And now, this week, we land on this one in Hebrews 13.4, on marriage and sexuality. In 13.4, the writer says, Let marriage be held in honor by all. And let the marriage bed be kept undefiled, for God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Let marriage be held in honor by all. I wonder what that means. It reminds me of a a church history lesson I had in graduate school. There was this time in the church's history when common folk didn't get to take communion anymore. And there are all kinds of problems with this, which we won't get into. But basically, communion, the body and blood of Jesus, was reserved for the priest and for the rich, the elite. But what the priest would do for everybody was take the bread, the body of Jesus, beforehand and march it through the city, through the town in a kind of communion parade. They would go street by street, and people would, would come from the countrysides and gather at these windows and at the curbside just to see the body and blood of Jesus represented in that bread as it went by in this communion parade. Just the sight of something so precious, so honored, was enough to sustain them. And you know, it is a really incredible meal. Uh, for, for all of us who aren't into kind of that hocus-pocus stuff, you know that hocus-pocus comes from the church. They would, over the communion bread, the, the priest would speak the words hocus corpus meum," which means this is my body. And suddenly for these common folk, this bread was transformed into Jesus' body. And to them, it seemed like hocus pocus. That's what they heard. But anyways, for those of us who aren't in the hocus pocus stuff, that communion meal is still really precious to us. You know, if I were to do a communion thought like Bill did just a second ago, and I took the tray of juice of Jesus' blood, and I took the, the pan with his bread in it, and I threw them on the ground really dramatically, that would be what we call in preaching circles a moving sermon. You know, the kind of sermon that ends with me having to move. Preacher joke, yeah, gotcha. You wouldn't like it. You know, you would not like it if I did that. Why? Okay, even, even in ways that you can't explain, the blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus is precious to you. It's the reason that Peter calls the blood that cleanses us, washes us, saves us, calls it the precious blood of Christ. And that word precious, there in Peter, is the same word used for marriage here in Hebrews 13. Literally, literally it says, marriage should be held in honor, or, or, or literally, make marriage precious. And precious to all. And precious, maybe like the blood of Jesus. Which makes me, of course, think, you know, would we line the hallways of Highland? Or would I stand there in the hallways with you to watch as this incredible marriage was paraded by? Would I do that? Or on the flip side, would I be as upset about a, to- about a-, a failed marriage as I would about a toppled communion tray? Would I care enough to step in or not? I think it's in asking those questions that you begin to get at the, what, this, what is implicit, the implications within this ethic for this whole community, for all of us as we gather together. And I think for your life, to hold marriage in honor, to make marriage precious is serious, really serious business. And according to this text, it's business for all, for everybody. So it's not just business for the minister or for the elders, but for everyone. Everyone. And if it's the business of everyone, married couples, singles, divorcees, widows, kids, if it's everybody's business, if this is everybody's job, then you're probably wondering, how do you do your job? How do you make marriage precious? How do you honor it? Okay, to answer that, we need to think about an old VBS story. I'm in the VBS mindset from this last week. And when I was the Apostle John, and, and, uh, well, okay, it was fun. So I'm in the VBS mindset. Remember Esau? from BBS, Esau's the big, wild, hairy older brother of Jacob. And his story's kind of painful to rehearse, because as the older brother, he's got the birthright, which is a double share of the inheritance. Well, he's out in the field one day, and he comes home, and he's hungry. He's, he's really uncontrollably hungry. And Jacob's there, and he's making this nice stew, and Jacob says, here, have some stew, but first, give me your birthright. Remember the story? And Esau does it. We cannot believe it every time we hear the story, but Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of soup, and that's the beginning of his end. Temporary relief in spite of permanent consequences. How permanent? Well, so permanent that, as Hebrews says later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought the blessing with tears. So permanent that all the crying in the world cannot alleviate these permanent consequences of his temporary relief. So what does that have to do with marriage? It seems like not a lot at first glance. But when you dive deeper into this text, I think what you'll see is that the worst threat to our marriages, the worst threat to marriage in this community being honored by all, is getting a case of the Esau's. And the best way for all of us to honor marriage is to treat you and me for the Esau's before we come down with it. What am I talking about? Okay, this text, Hebrews 13, four gives us an ethic, honoring marriage, and then it explains how and why. So listen, I'm gonna make it make sense. This is the what, let marriage be held in honor by all. How, let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. Why, for God will judge fornicators and adulterers. When we read that, the how and the why, a warning bell should go off in our mind because if we're reading Hebrews straight through like the original readers of this letter would have done, we would have recognized two of those words from just a chapter before when the Hebrews author tells the story of Esau. There are two words in Hebrews 13.4 that show up back in Hebrews 12, and they occur in the how and the why. So if we flip the page backwards, we can kind of get this insight into Hebrews 13.4. And the first one of those two words that shows up in both passages is the word defiled. In 13, he says, Let the marriage bed be kept undefiled, And earlier in chapter 12, he begins the story of Esau, retelling the story of Esau with a warning about defilement. Listen, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and through it many become defiled. The word defiled isn't really a word that we think a lot about today. We don't think in terms of cleanliness and uncleanliness like the Jews did, for example. But we know about pollution. You know, like the BP oil that spilled into the Gulf, these permanent damage, permanent damage to that ecosystem. We know about corruption. We've seen that on our computer. This file is corrupted. The file is ruined. But my favorite translation of the word might be the word stained. I think it's the best word in modern context. Many become stained. I had a really terrifying experience of staining last time I preached a few weeks ago. it was right before 10 minutes before I was going to walk to the chapel and preach there. And uh, I keep a toothbrush in my office to brush my teeth before I come out and mingle with you all. You know, I give a lot of side hugs, and, you know, I, I feel sorry for you all if you have to catch a whiff. So I, I brush my teeth, and it was 10 minutes before, and I decide. I'm going to go brush my teeth before I walk over to the chapel. So I go into the office coffee room where we have a refrigerator and a little sink, and I lean over that sink, and I start to brush my teeth, and I gargle, and I spit it out, and I wipe wipe my face, and I walk back to my office, and all of a sudden I notice a chill because apparently in leaning over that counter, I got my pants wet in the worst possible spot for your pants to be wet before you're going to preach a sermon and i'm not going to explain the links i went to to dry that stain before i preached but you know the short version of the story is it did not dry fortunately the people in the chapel are really gracious no one, and you stand behind a big <laughs> altar right so no one said anything and i was really fortunate okay luckily that stain dried but it wasn't permanent we know about stains that are permanent too you know, when I was little, I saved and saved for this acoustic guitar. I thought it was the most beautiful guitar I'd ever seen, and this is when I thought I was going to be the next Garth Brooks. It didn't pan out exactly like that. But I saved and saved for this guitar, and I put it in the case. A week after I got it, and I closed the lid of the case and didn't latch it. A few hours later, I walked by, and I picked up that case, and the guitar spilled out, gouged the wood, and it was permanent. Right? There was nothing that could be done. The guitar was ruined in my eyes. and I remember. I wept. Twelve years old, and I wept over that thing. What he says in Hebrews 12 is this really painful reminder about stains. That not only can they be permanent, like in Esau's case, who cries and cries and can't scrub the stain away, but that some stains can affect many. Okay, Like that little spot on the guitar that ruins the whole guitar, or like a weed that spreads throughout the yard. There are stains that defile many. And maybe what he's saying is that when one of our marriages is defiled, all of ours are. That's the why, which brings us to the how, and the second word that both the story of Esau in Hebrews 12 and the command to honor marriage in Hebrews 13 share, and it's the word porn. It reads, it's translated maybe in your translation as fornicator, which is a really dated word in Hebrews 13, or immoral or sexually immoral in Hebrews 12. It reads like this. It starts with the passage I just read, and then it it goes on. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and through it many become defiled. And then parallel, see to it that no one becomes like Esau, an immoral, literally a sexually immoral, a fornicator, one of those porn guys, a godless person who sold his birthright for a single meal, You know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent even though he sought the blessing with tears. Hebrews 13 says God judges the sexually immoral who don't keep the marriage bed pure and stain free. And in Hebrews 12, he says that's the kind of guy Esau was. He was sexually immoral. Well, wait a second. We just told the Esau story about this hungry Esau coming back and selling his birthright for some soup, and sex has nothing to do with it. So we're tempted to call up the writer of Hebrews and say, you need to edit this. There's been an error in this book for 2,000 years, and you need to know about it. That wasn't his problem. You know, what Esau did was just trade something. It was just accept temporary relief in spite of permanent consequences, what Esau did was just trade something meaningful for something trivial. And see, that's nothing like sexual immorality, is it? Nothing at all. A few months ago, one of our young men in our young adult class shared his testimony. He was addicted to pornography for years before he got married, and then that addiction continued into his marriage. He was wrecked by guilt and shame. But each time he was faced with the decision of what he was going to do, it was always, always easier to choose temporary relief in spite of what might be permanent consequences. You might say he had a case of the Esau's. And he thought that when he confessed to his wife, when he cleared the air, that she would be grateful to him. That, you know, he was being honest, that their marriage bed could be made better, but the reality was when he told her, it was very clear that the marriage bed was stained, it was defiled, and that the consequences were severe and permanent. She didn't celebrate with him, she wept. And you see, I think the way for the church, for all of us to honor marriages, is for all of us to kill the Esau that lives inside of us. And the Esau is that tendency that we all have in all kinds of situations to choose temporary relief in spite of permanent consequences. And as aliens we have this heavenly calling and when we act like Esau we throw away that heavenly calling for the earthly one because the earthly one seems more immediately appealing and gratifying. That's the alien problem in this text. And I think that's why marriage is precious. It's why we have to keep Esau out of the bedroom, and it's why in Hebrews 13.4, out of all these lists of commands, Hebrews 13.4 is the only one that explicitly says God will judge those who fail to keep it. Marriage is precious because when our marriages fail because of moments of sexual Esau, not only have we failed our marriages, but get this, we have failed at discipleship. Now, what I hope that we are forming in you as a place, as a community that exists to do discipleship and forming in you as people who we want to disciple others is the ability to not choose temporary relief despite permanent consequences in any situation. We want you to choose permanent faithfulness both to God and to your spouse. But if you press it a step farther, it's obvious what the Hebrews writer is saying. If people in our faith family see marriages failing because of moments of, of unfaithfulness moments of choosing temporary relief how can we expect them to do any better in any other situation they will always choose temporary relief because we've trained them to do it that's why we got to honor marriage because we've got a discipleship problem on our hands how do we honor marriage i think there's probably many ways But as this text points out, what we cannot do is honor marriage without weeding out sexual sin. And so this is that part of the sermon, the uncomfortable part. It's uncomfortable because of what I know is going on in the homes, on the phones, on the computers, the pads, the iPads of many at this church. Uh, when, we, when that young man gave his testimony a few months ago, I extended an invitation afterwards for guys in our young adult group dealing with pornography or sexual addiction to reach out to me or to Bill Ivey. Bill Ivey's name is listed on the back of your link, as well as Tracy Childers, two guys who really dedicated themselves to helping men fight this, along with Kathy Ivey and Lawana for the women. And When we extended that invitation, um, calls kept coming for a while. There were a lot of guys dealing with it. Then they kind of stop. But there are some of you here today who last night or this morning looked at porn. Uh, Statistics say 70% of men ages 18 to 34 look at pornography at least once a month. 70%. 25% of all web searches are for pornographic content. 25%. more and more women are looking at porn, too. Let me say it really simply. You're staining your marriage. You're staining your marriage. Or your future marriage. You know, if you think that this is going to disappear, this habit is going to disappear right when you get married, I'd encourage you to think again. I'd encourage you to talk to my friend. Because every time you opt into those temporary, those moments of temporary relief, in spite of permanent consequences, you are training yourself to do the same thing. Over and over again, that habit's going to be hard to break. But the heartbreaking thing is that it can be beat. By the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this this stain can be scrubbed away. If it wasn't possible, think about this, the writer of Hebrews would not have cared to mention it. If it wasn't possible to fight sexual sin in a community, the author of Hebrews would not have said a thing about it if it was beyond our control, but it's not. Of those guys that we've gathered into accountability groups, most have not relapsed. You know, most are not looking at pornography on a regular basis, or ever. Many have downloaded software on their phones and computers, and the list of that software is on the back of your link. And parents, I would highly encourage you to check out those things. But many have downloaded software. They're part of these uh, relationships with people, and they're not relapsing. Okay, I have seen, we have celebrated victory in these groups. We've had setbacks, but I've seen guys permanently change. I've seen guys who are leaning into their heavenly calling in ways that they never have in their whole life. Or at least since they were little boys. But some of you men and women, you're not going to call. You're not going to call me. You're not going to call those people listed on the back of the link. You're not going to call your friends here. And you're certainly not going to call your spouse and your story is going to be like two of the stories I heard recently of men where it started innocently enough on the computer or women where it started innocently enough in the gym or at work and it ended in someone else's marriage bed. And then you're going to look like Esau, crying and crying, and it might just be too late. This might not be your struggle, but all of us struggle with being Esau at times. All of us have this us. Okay, men, think about where your eyes go. All right, let's talk about this for a second. The word we use is to check out a woman. Think about how often you do this. I think it's really tempting to think that there are no permanent consequences for that. And in that way, checking out someone is the essence of temporary relief or pleasure. Surely there are no permanent consequences. But I want to think about what message that's communicating to your son or your daughter or your friend. I mean, have you considered the ways that your whole body is working to disciple others or not disciple them, including your eyes? Men, what I want to guarantee you is that your son saw that woman first and is now watching your eyes to see if you will look. Men, what, what are your eyes teaching your daughters about beauty or your wives? Guys, you can take your wife to an expensive anniversary dinner, buy her an expensive necklace, and if you check out the waitress when she walks by, you should not have wasted your money. And Women. Okay. Uh, Let me talk to women for a second. You know, I mentioned the youth group I was growing up in, and that youth minister also very often said something to the effect of, women, this is basically your fault because of what you wear. And that is not the message I want to communicate. Men have to take ownership in this. But I do want to consider how what you wear might reflect the Esau inside of you. You know, if you put on that skirt and think about how many men will do a double take, that skirt is stained. And if you get a little bit of pleasure every time some guy does a double take, that skirt is stained. Here's the question. How are you going to honor all marriages if your skirt does not even honor your marriage? And, and, and young women who aren't married yet, let me talk to you for a second. Okay, you might think the dressing in a way that gets you noticed by men has no permanent consequences, okay? But let me explain how that root is a little bit more bitter than you think it is. Princeton researchers did a study recently where they monitored the brain activity of men while they were showed images of women ranging from modestly dressed and not so modestly dressed. The area of their brain that lit up when they saw women not modestly dressed, when they saw a lot of skin, was not the area of the brain that lights up when people are dealing with affection or other people's emotions, other people's intentions, what you intend by wearing that. The part of their brain that lit up when they saw a lot of skin or a form-fitting outfit was the same part of a man's brain that lights up when he sees a useful tool like a hammer or a saw. Yeah, it's tempting to laugh at that, but think about that. Want to talk about permanent consequences? What you wear can make you less than human to a man. It can make you a tool. That's permanent. That's not what you want of course not all of us struggle with being esau in the sexual realm but there's a word for us in this text because he very clearly says marriage should be honored by all by everybody see we have an incredible marriage ministry at highland that's honoring all marriages and working to keep the marriage bed pure undefiled they've got a number of great programs and great people who are pouring into people's lives here and they would love to talk to you if you're struggling again some of their contact infos on the back of the link. They're working hard to combat the Esau inside of us when it comes to marriage. But, but here's the reality, is that they can only do so much. And they do not represent all of us. What they need, what we need, is for you, for all of you, to stand in the gap for those friends who are struggling, who are stained and defiled. We need you, all of you, to become the transforming accountability in their lives. You don't have to go through a committee. You don't have to write a letter to the elders. You just need to step up and step into your friends' lives, and you aren't going to be invited. In fact, you're probably going to have to break the door down, but do it because we can replace doors, but we cannot replace our marriages. They're precious. Precious. And if you, all of you, all of us, Don't defend them as precious. Then maybe nothing is precious to us after all. This is a hard word. It's a hard word. I don't deny it. But it's a brilliant community that can come together and talk about hard words in our midst. Things that are going on in the lives of Highlanders and the lives of our friends outside this community. They need us and they need you. I'm grateful to be here where we fearless and engaging this problem. If today you've got a sin that you want to confess, if you want to take on Jesus in baptism, I'd encourage you to come down and talk to me or one of our other ministers or one of our shepherds in the back and along the back wall. I know they would love to meet with you. Let's continue in worship together. Will you stand with me? Great is thy faithfulness, O God my.